That's the future. Amen. This morning's scripture, Romans 12, 14 through 21. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The word of God, let us pray. Most gracious God, as we look at these very difficult verses this morning, we pray that your Holy Spirit would guide our thoughts, sear them into our minds, help us to put them to work in our lives. Help us to give new meaning to them, Lord, to understand them better. And Lord, I pray this morning that the words I speak be not of me, but be of your spirit and be glorifying unto you. For it is in Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. So as Paul began this 12th chapter, it was sort of a primer on how Christians relate to other Christians we get along with each other and and what we're supposed to do and and what that's supposed to look like but as we go through this 12th chapter the the focus tends to broaden and it broadens to believers and unbelievers alike so the scope gets wider as we go through it and what I've read this morning demonstrates that you know as you've heard me say many times I'm concerned about what I see from the church as a whole. Not this particular church, but just the church with a small c, we'll say. As I said last week, we tend to compartmentalize Christianity. And by compartmentalizing Christianity, there are those that say, yes, I accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I ask Him to forgive me of my sins And that's it. At that point, I'm going to lock the door and I'm going to hold the key and he's going to have no other part in my life because that's the only part that I care about is eternity and I think that's how I get there. So that's all the relationship's going to be. But as I said to you last week, a true relationship with Jesus does not allow that to happen. You may think you've done that, But if you think you've done that, you you don't have a relationship with him at all because he permeates every aspect of our lives when we truly know him. There is nothing that, that is left uncovered or there's no part of us that he doesn't become involved with and in. Unfortunately, we want Jesus as our savior because we think that's easy. We, we send that message, right? Being a Christian, 
is easy. All we have to do is believe on Jesus and confess with our mouth that he is Lord, that God raised him from the dead, repent of our sins, and it's done. That's that big red easy button. What was the commercial that had the easy button? Was it Staples? Staples. That's what we want. We want something really easy, a box we can check, something we can push, and it's done. We got it taken care of, and we can go about living our own lives the way we want to live them and not worry about it anymore. That's not true Christianity. That idea is dangerous because it will lead to destruction for a whole lot of people. That's just the reality of what the Word of God tells us about Jesus Christ. And unfortunately, it happens so often that whenever that decision is made, whenever, wherever, in whatever fashion, when things get difficult, they bolt. When sufferings come, and they will, when life gets hard, and it will, then we forget the Jesus in the box. And we go back to acting like we did before we ever knew him, right? We go back to acting like we did when we were of the world. That old man that tends to rear his ugly head, he so rears his head when difficult things arise. You want to see somebody lose Jesus entirely? Watch them through a difficult moment. Watch them during the situation when all chaos is happening all around. But we don't prepare others. That, that's coming. It's part of it. We were studying Hebrews this morning in the 10th chapter. There was a group of people that the writer in Hebrews was writing about. And he said, you were joyous. This is the TSW version of the Bible. Okay, I'm paraphrasing. He says, you were joyous when your possessions were plundered. Okay? Do I need to repeat that? You were joyous when your possessions were plundered. You were joyous when you went home and everything in your house was wiped out. You had nothing left. No money, no clothes, no furniture, no laptop, no cell phone. It's all gone and you were joyous. How's that? How's that? That's lofty. That's radical. But he says, they were joyous because they knew they possessed something greater in eternity. Now we know the world would not be joyous in that situation. But my question to us is, how would we react as Christians? And I'm with you. It's going to be as difficult for me as it is for you. I ain't going to be happy. But that is the standard. That's what is asked of us. So when we have young people and we're trying to lure them to Jesus, do we tell them you're going to have to rejoice when someone steals everything you have? Because that's a hard button, right? We have the easy button, that's the hard one. Christianity is hard. It's hard, it's difficult. And I say it, hopefully, often up here. 
There's nothing easy about it. As I said a couple weeks ago, it's the easiest thing in the world and it is the hardest thing in the world. It's going to ask you to turn away from things or people that you dearly love. And he's going to ask you to turn towards and embrace things and people that you don't like. It's hard. These are, these are lofty things that we're looking at here in this 12th chapter of Romans. They're very idyllic in nature. And as I said last week, that does not mean that we just sweep them under the rug and say, eh, not going to worry about it. Paul didn't write them in the very word of God just to take up extra space. It wasn't as if, if you've ever written an article for a newspaper, the next week rolls around and you're thinking, well, what am I going to throw in here? That wasn't what Paul was doing. He wrote them because they meant something to God and they should mean something to us as well. That's why so many people that don't take them seriously, they walk through and live a very shallow Christian eh, life. They don't see the radical nature of it, the true life of being a Christian. Jesus said it best when he said, wide is the path that leads to what? Destruction. But what is the gate that leads to eternal life? Narrow. Narrow. Many are called, but few are chosen. 65%, I think it's a 2019 maybe study, 65% of Americans claim to be Christian. 65%. There are 258 million adults in this country. So, wasn't a math major, but the best I could tell, that's around 168 million people that claim to be Christian. Wow. That's a lot of folks. They claim that. In some part of their life, they've shelved Jesus up there and said, yeah, I believe in him, asking him to forgive me of my sins, and they've locked the door and they've walked away. That's not being a Christian. Somebody that stood up here did them a disservice. Or somebody's mom and dad taught them incorrectly. You have a young person that says, yeah, as they grew older, 40, 50, I gave my life to Jesus when I was 10. Did you? Did you really give your life to him? Was your life changed so dramatically that when somebody comes into your house and wipes out everything that you have, you are joyous in that moment? Or did you just do something because it was popular and seemed to be the thing to do at the time because everybody was encouraging you to do it? Everybody should give their life to Jesus, but everybody should do so eyes wide open, going in, knowing it's not an easy road. But it'll be so worth it, right? I don't want to paint it all doom and gloom because everything that we suffer in this world is not even worthy of being compared to the glory of eternity. I want you to know that. You can bank on that, but I will also tell you, you can bank on the suffering. It's going to happen. So be prepared.
So we have this morning more difficult portions of Scripture, more lofty portions of Scripture. Christians have been persecuted or killed for over 2,000 years. Praise God we don't see it as much in this country. I suspect there will come a time when we probably will. We may not live to see it. I hope that we don't, but I believe that it will be coming. But rest assured, it's happening in other places around this world. Every single apostle was killed for their faith. Every one of them. None of them, none of them requested a revolt. None of them tried to raise troops to fight back against those who were going to kill them. None of them wanted to overthrow whatever government it was that was killing them. Not one. Why is that? It was because they lived their lives mimicking Jesus. You remember those bracelets? Gosh, our kids were little. WWJD. Anybody remember those? You got one? Are they back? They're back. Things come in style and out of style like the mullet. Not going to happen to this guy. I did have one. But anyway, those bracelets, WWJD, what would Jesus do? They were a fad. They became sort of a fashion-type statement. But the underlying premise behind him is brilliant. Brilliant. If you want to know what is expected of us as Christians, ask yourself that question, right? Whenever you're getting ready to respond to someone that has just ticked you off, Ask yourself that question. What would Jesus do in this situation? And I think more times than not, it's going to change your response. Now, he didn't give us every answer to every situation we may be in. But as you look through the Gospels, you're going to see someone that's the opposite of what we are when, we're, or when we come to this earth. You're going to see a very gentle, a very loving human being and demonstrated that love to everyone. But the one thing that he did not compromise, and that was the Father and his words. So if you wanted to gain his ire, do something against the word of God or against his Father. Then you would see his ire. But that was it. Whatever they did to him, not once did he try to fight back. Not once did he try to revolt. Not once did he try to call down 12 legions of angels in an instant. I'm there, right? Someone comes to me in the garden and says, you're going mad. Uh-uh, not this guy. I got those 12 legions. They're coming. They're wiping you guys out. But that's what Jesus did, and that should be our goal. 
That, that should be our guidance in all situations. And so when we have those moments, ask ourselves that question. How would Jesus handle this situation? And I've told you my, my problem with the church and government and everything that's going on. And I, 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 I jump backwards and as much as I'm either pleased or displeased with what goes on in Washington, D.C., I have to ask myself, what was Jesus' reaction to Rome that was the worst when it came to torturing and killing for no apparent reason? What was his desire in that environment? It wasn't to overthrow Caesar. Not once did I hear him ever talk about, let's revolt and overthrow and change the government. Wasn't his deal. And so I think the church needs to tread lightly in those situations, keep our eyes on Christ, and let God take care of the governments. He was real and he was genuine. He is real and he is genuine. Even on the cross, they put a crown of thorns on his head, blood dripping in his face. They laughed at him, they cursed him, they mocked him, They beat him till his back was like hamburger. They spat in his face, hung him on the cross. And what did he say? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That seemed beyond the actions of that person. That seemed something beautiful inside the most vilest of people that's what jesus did yet here we are someone snubs us at the grocery store and we're kicked off for nine months i saw so-and-so down there and she didn't even speak to me right We have no idea what's going on in so-and-so's life at that moment. What kind of tragedy he or she's dealing with, what's going on. We don't have a clue. But our instinct is to persecute. It's to fight back. It's to be angry. And so as we look at these more difficult passages today, I want us to keep reiterating in our minds, and I'll remind us, what would Jesus do? in these situations they're difficult and they are hard and that does not mean that we shouldn't with all of our might try to make them a part of our lives verse 16 live in harmony with one another live in harmony with one another Paul encourages us to do that Christians should not be difficult We should not be easily offended, right? We all know folks, maybe we're one of them, that we are offended easily. Nor should we be easily offensive. We shouldn't offend others easily. We should live in harmony with each other. We shouldn't delight in drama, right? Funny thing about drama is usually those that talk about, oh, I hate drama, are the ones that's always right in the middle of it. Right? Drama should have no place 
in our lives as Christians. Once again, we look at Jesus. How much drama do you see that Jesus was in the middle of in the Gospels? And when I'm talking about drama, I'm talking about petty, worthless, useless bickering or grudges between he and anybody else. I mean, he had a legitimate beef with the Pharisees and Sadducees. That was because they were offensive to the Word of God. That, that, that's different. That's not the drama. I'm talking about petty and useless nonsense. It didn't exist. Don't be haughty. Don't be arrogant, but associate with the lowly. Oh, the clicks in this life. Oh, the clicks. Some people develop this mentality and associate only with a certain group of people because they're alike, whatever, however that may happen. They believe that they're above others in the social pecking order or maybe even within a church society or a church family. This can affect all socio-economical and religious entities on a variety of different levels. You name it. You may have a group of blonde-headed folks that think they're better than the group of brunette folks. For what reason, really? None. None whatsoever. Wealthy people sometimes refuse to associate with poor people. Educated folks sometimes refuse to associate with the uneducated. People that tend to think of themselves as holy refuse to associate with who they see as sinners. The opposite is just as true, right? The poor sometimes refuse to associate with those who are wealthy. The uneducated sometimes refuse to associate with those that are educated. The sinners, or everybody's a sinner, but those that don't come to church won't associate with those who do come to church. They see that as those who are in church as hypocrites. Everything behind this passage of Scripture associating with the lowly is prefaced by don't be haughty. That's the key. Pride. Pride is the reason we refuse to associate with other people or we think we're better than those that we're not associating with. Whether we have great pride in our lack of education, where we have great pride in our wealth, our lack of wealth, whatever it be, our blonde hair, our black hair, it doesn't matter. It, the, the whole reason behind our refusal to associate with some people is pride. And that's why Paul prefaces this with, don't be haughty, don't be prideful, associate with everyone. We go back, what would Jesus do? What did he do? Did he only associate with the rich? No. He associated with everybody. The lowly, the tax collectors, those that were despised by everybody else, Jesus was there. The sinners... Everybody, he did not discriminate for any reason based on anything, nor should we. 
Never be wise in your own sight. Never be wise in your own sight. These folks are pretty difficult to be around, right? Because when we get to some point and we're so wise in our own sight, it is hard to be in the same room with a lot of these folks, right? Because you're going to know, you're going to know this for the most part. You're going to know how intelligent they believe that they are because they can't help but share it. And yet Paul tells us to guard against that. Don't be a, what's the key word here? Know-it-all, right? Nobody likes to know-it-all. Back up to the humility thing. It's the pride that causes that. Who was the wisest ever to walk this earth? It was Jesus. And yet as you read the Gospels and you watch him in your mind's eye through the words of God, you don't see him boasting about that. I mean, he would predict what people were going to do before they did it. Never said another word. Now, us, on the other hand, you remember I told you that was going to happen. Right? Because we want the credit for being so smart about what we just predicted. I don't remember Jesus in the garden when he's sitting or, or in the upper room when they're sitting at the Last Supper and he's dining with all the apostles and he looks to Judas and says, the one that's going to betray me is here right now. And he basically tells Judas, it's you. And Judas gets up and leaves. And later on that night, Judas brings in a big group of Roman soldiers to arrest him and he kisses him on his cheek. I don't think Jesus turned around and said, see, I told you all he was going to do this. The smartest person to ever walk this earth, walk this earth with great humility. Never bragged. No one ever knew that he was the smartest man in the room, even though he was. It's all about living harmoniously with each other. Because if you are not, if you are wise in your own sight, nobody's going to be able to be around you. It's going to be like oil and water. They're not going to enjoy your company you're going to be offensive. After all, what is there to brag about? What, what role do we have in any intelligence we may have? It's sort of like whenever we get proud or if we get proud or arrogant or the way we look. What control do we have over that? None. It's all a gift of God. Whatever is floating around between these ears that is of any benefit to anyone in this world is because of God. Not because of this guy. And so there's no reason that we should be wise in our own sight, and yet it it happens. Verse 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Notice Paul prefaces this twice. He tells us to live peaceably with all, but he hedges it. If possible, and so far as it depends on you. Anyone, I'm not asking you to raise your hand, just in your own mind. Have somebody that it's just not going to happen with. You've done everything that you could do. 
You've tried everything that you could do. Can't do it. And so you just have to do that and walk away. Paul knows that. Don't continue the fight. Don't don't be difficult. Don't be offensive. And don't continue to be offended. If you've done something wrong, go apologize. Make that right. If that doesn't work, then it's not up to you. And he says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, don't apologize, especially if it has to do with Jesus and the Word of God and your relationship with God. Don't apologize for the truth. Don't do it. If, in fact, I say a lot of things up here that is probably offensive to other people. And I hope they're only offensive to other people because they come from the Word of God. If I offend you for some other reason, then my apologies. I'm sorry, I did not mean to. But if I offend you or the word of God offends you through me, it was meant to. And I'm not going to apologize for that. And I think that's what's wrong in a lot of places today. We don't want the word of God to be offensive through who's ever bringing that message. But God means it that way for a reason. It's supposed to be. It's offensive to me. You know, when I'm sitting down and I'm preparing this and I'm going through it, it shows me how horrible I am. It puts that mirror out there and, you know, I'm not just preaching to a group of people. It's to me, too. And it is offensive to me, but it's supposed to be. And so, if it's possible, so if I've offended you for the Word of God, it's not possible. I'm not going to be able to make that peaceable. I'm not going to wash that down so that it is, or it makes you feel warm and fuzzy inside because that's not what God wants of me. It's not what God wants of you. So I think that's the, those are the reasons why Paul prefaces that, live peaceably with all, with if possible and as far as it depends on us. Verse 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Oh, this is difficult. Leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, and I will repay, says the Lord. There is something within us as fallen men and women that want to get even, right? It's just there. And there's something that hangs on after we are born again that rears its head that continues this. And that's why Paul encourages us, no, no, check yourself of this. Deal with this if it's in your heart, and I assure you it probably is, because it's, it's here too. Never avenge yourselves, leave it to the wrath of God. We love to see people get what they deserve, right? And when somebody hurts us, we want them hurt. Unfortunately, that's, that's how it works. And then you'll hear the, the oft-quoted Leviticus 24. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Right? You punch me, I get to punch you. We've covered this, but it's been some years. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth is for the government. You punch me, you go to jail. That is until 22, whenever the Bail Reform Act kicks in and nobody goes to jail anymore, but we'll talk about that another day. Leviticus 24 was all about a way to set up the government. It wasn't about me reacting to you. It wasn't as if 
You slap me, I get to slap you. No, you slap me, the government's going to bring justice down on you. That was what that was all about. So when they quote Leviticus 24, you hear eye for an eye, that's the proper setting in the proper context. It doesn't justify you shooting someone that shoots you. Romans 13, and we'll get to that, maybe start on it next week, but Romans 13 is going to tell us that God sets up every government on this earth and that he is in charge and he has given charge to those governments to deal with those types of things. Instead of being vindictive and seeking retribution, what does Paul tell us to do? Leave it to the wrath of God. He will repay. It's a quote from Deuteronomy 32. Every bad deed will go punished. Every one of them. Rest assured of that. Every bad deed that I have done, that you have done, will go punished. It's just a question on whether it's going to be punished through a substitute or it's going to be punished through the individual that did it. And it's going to be punished in a much better and more judicious way than what our government system will ever be able to. Jesus was the substitute. Remember the, the Gabby Patino and Brian Laundrie situation where he killed his fiance. I think it was in, around Jackson Hole, Wyoming, and then he come home and went and they found him allegedly or apparently committing suicide in Florida. Oh, the disappointment, right? Everybody's like, man, he stole justice. He didn't steal justice. The justice that's being meted out on him is much more perfect than anything we can do on this earth. Understand and know that. That is why vengeance is not for us, but it is for God. Oh, we have another lofty one. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, let him starve. No, that's not what the Word of God says. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him drink. Here's the alternative. This is what we're supposed to do. Don't turn to revenge. Don't seek vengeance. Instead, if he's hungry, if the guy that just punched you in the jaw needs a hand sandwich, make it for him. If he's thirsty, give him a glass of water. Man, that's tough. That's not easy. What happens when you do these things? Tells us that you're heaping burning coals on his head. Well, many people believe that that means he's being punished more, right? You think, well, God's vengeance is going to be greater, so I'll gladly make him a ham sandwich and give him a glass of water because I want God to pour out his wrath on him. It's not what this means. It's kind of difficult to find, but in ancient Egypt, when someone was humiliated or embarrassed, or repenting from something they did and were embarrassed about something they, were, they did, they wore a pot on their head and put burning coals in that pot and walked around with it on. So that's what you're doing. And if you think about it, what's the reaction you're going to get whenever you do that? Somebody socks you in the jaw, 
you say, hey, can I get you some food or drink? Wow. It's going to cause most people to feel really bad about how they treated you. And it's going to stop the situation from escalating, right? They sock you in the jaw, you hit them back, and then here we go, it's on. But whenever you treat evil with kindness, it stops the situation from escalating, and it makes those who committed the evil, unless they're just some sort of psychotic, difficult human being, if they have a conscience, feel bad about what they just did. And so you see there, there's great truth in real life with this passage. Because not only is it the proper way for a Christian to react in the circumstances, but it also helps the situation. If we only begin and continue the fight, nobody walks away a winner, ever. <clears throat> Don't let evil overtake you. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Evil in the form of vengeance has destroyed many lives. The desire to get back or get even or see that someone gets what they deserve has destroyed countless lives. And it holds you hostage. It is a captor. It is a prison that only you reside in. And so there is great freedom when we are able to do that. When we're able to let go of someone else and how they've wronged us, whether we can live in harmony with them or not, but to let go of it and just move on, then we're freed. We're freed to truly love. But if you're harboring, number one is you're not a very good person and people just don't like to be around you because you're always bitter. Number two is it, it frees you to truly love other folks whenever you can let it go and understand and respect that vengeance is God and, and not our own. We become much more enjoyable people. These aren't easy principles. And I don't stand up here and tell you that I've got them because I don't. But I will tell you that I try. And that's what I ask of you is to fight the battle of making these a part of your lives. Fight against that desire to, eh, not going to worry about it. I get more joy out of socking the guy in the jaw after he socks me. You really don't. At the end of the day, you don't. These principles go against everything that our flesh cries out for. They're the opposite of everything that we've been born and sometimes taught to do as young people growing up. But as we go back, what would Jesus do in those circumstances? We know, because we can read the Gospels and we can see what he did when he was scourged, when he was spat upon, when he was laughed at, when he was mocked, when he was given that crown of thorns that buried deep into his scalp. Nothing. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Amen? Let us pray.